Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast where we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 427, is recorded live November 14th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Chilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where I'm wondering what this white stuff is. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and I know exactly what that white stuff is. <laughs> say it can't be. Uh, well, I got two kids down in Florida who keep telling me I'm not coming home, so I don't know. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're just uh, decided that the... Uh, the tropical days are much better. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple of people post that used to be uh, in the dive club that are down in Florida, sending back really happy pictures of the beach. <laughs> yeah, they're going to get their 31 degree day coming up here pretty soon and they'll not be able to handle it. It always happens. And it is funny how that, that means that 31, oh my gosh, it's freezing out. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I did uh, talk to some people who were in Texas, and they were having below 32 at night. And then uh, I guess even California's had some nippy weather, too. So this is kind of cold a little bit everywhere. Well, Bob and them are traveling, and they've ran into snow and hot. <laughs> and But they're going high country, low country, desert, mountains. So yeah, they're prepared to bear anyway, I think. Yeah. I've, they need to be. They're They're hardy. I mean, he's yep. probably, did he bring his battery undergarments with him? He could make sure he stays warm. Well, he's got enough batteries in that truck or in that uh, camper of his. I don't think he'd have any problem. I'd just yeah. plug in my heating blanket. Uh, love me a heating blanket. Oh, I have mine on already. Yeah, my, my mine's upstairs waiting for me. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, every once in a while, because they don't last forever, and and I'll go a year with without one, and I'll just like keep grumbling to myself because I'm too cheap for the sixty dollars. And it is funny how I've had again in the old days, they work for years, and if I can get four years out of one nowadays, I'm happy. No, no, these and that's these pretty are all, sad. Well, the the components are all a lot lighter weight because you remember the old blankets; it was like the coils were huge. And you could feel it. Now, I don't have a heating blanket that's on the top. It's a heated mattress pad. So mm -hmm. that I think a, a mattress pad gets a lot more, especially with me, <laughs> little, little, little weight and torture going around on it. So they, uh, I'm sure that has nothing to do with it. But we'll, we'll blame it on the cheap manufacturing. Well, I like the idea of the heavier coils and stuff, because if you fold it over and cover that on top of you, not only do you have a heating supply, but you got bullet protection, too. <laughs> bullet protection. Plus you got some, you got some ballistic you're, interface there. You're you're sending out an EMP pulse at the same time, probably. Well, that's, yeah, not that you said that. <laughs> I'm making a negative reaction to, well, again, magnetic and lead doesn't work, though, but damn. Yeah. 
Yeah, they, 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 they're probably the government's tracking us. They, they probably can tell who's got all the electric blankets plugged in. Shows up on a satellite somewhere. I'm sure the infrared would show up. <laughs> when I hear that, hmm, and I wonder, what does that hum? It's a drone going over my house, checking it out. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're trying to figure out if it's an electric blanket or, uh, you know, a, a, a hemp uh, greenhouse. That's probably true. <laughs> but in my case, they don't got to worry about it. Just check my electric bill. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Mine's been out of this world lately. I've oh, got some fires all... downstairs. They're sucking water everywhere. And uh, I I dread to see my electric bill. And it's going up again. Electric is? Oh, yeah. AP uh, got forth another proposal for a substantial increase. Yeah, well, so, that's uh, that's going to be the nature of things right now. They they were trying to go out in the open market and get brave, and then I think they decided, wait, we got to go out and be competitive when we can just be this uh, electric utility that's regulated and guaranteed to make a profit. Let's do that. Well, I think it's because AEP now has some share of wind power and they got that electric farm or the. Oh yeah. That, that's what, what they're people... doing is they're going to charge us the extra as cost and dim to make up the backup batteries and the supplemental energy oh, yeah. to make those look viable. Well, and that's the thing that most people don't realize. As much as I love, you know, a good diverse mix of uh, electric resources, is that on commercial utility scale, it is more expensive to use those forms of electric. Plus, uh, you know, let's do some searches on wind power and see how many of those uh, early windmills that are already having to be take down, taken down and scrapped. So it's not like you're getting, you know, 40, 50 years out of uh, some of these devices. You're not getting nearly that long and yeah. paid to put them up, and now you got to pay to put take them down. Uh, but I've been considering putting solar on the roof of my house. I see that there's uh, some new solar panels and roofing materials that I've been looking into getting. Cause, I, I can see using that for supplemental, but mm-hmm. I do not see that as a primary. Well, and what I would like to do is to do it just to kind of knock my bill down because, yeah, I, I, I would spend a lot to put the investment in now, but then it would, you know, as utility rates go up, you know, that's locked in. I've already paid for that. So if I could, I'd like to get at least a half to two-thirds of my electric uh from there and then also have some sort of battery backups and well, uh, if you've got electric you're going to have to have battery backup yeah well you're, i'm still going to be connected to the grid i'm mm-hmm. not going to go completely without but i'd like to be able to have some sort of sustainability when because we, we lose power a ridiculous amount out here they have i don't know if you've been around my neighborhood well yeah you have oh yeah yeah, every day. How many work. poles have they changed out? And if you take a look at the heads on the poles, they've got more switch outs than they ever used to before. So if you've got one that feeds out a housing area, take a look, and you can you can take that housing area off the grid. Yeah. And what I'm saying is, you can protect your power source and only have to isolate the section you're going to be working in. Yeah. You don't have to take out a huge grid just to do some work when you can now isolate that and get something fixed. It's interesting looking at some of the poles because it looked like they're moving some of it from one side of the road to the other. Uh, I hadn't noticed that. 
Yeah, because it, it looked like they were running the, the electric. Yeah, this is terribly local news for everybody listening. But they're running electric on the west side of the road. And now they've moved it to the east side in that section there by the uh, Lutheran school. At least that's what it appears to. I mean, the poles are still laying on the ground in the snow. But uh, it, it tells you it, how, much, how much money they must be invent, investing. They've been working on that for four weeks. And that's what a half mile of of uh, poles. Oh, easy, easy. Yeah, and yeah. So that that's just that little bit. Then you figure that that zigzags across the whole county that there's poles and poles and poles. So that's a it's quite an investment that they're they're doing there, or I should say, investment from a cost standpoint. Yeah. Uh, well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have up is uh, from Undercurrent talking about parents suing Patty over the death of the 13-year-old son. In February, they wrote about the death of uh, a, a name. Let me see if I can slaughter it. Tamulan Tescott, a 13-year Mongolian boy, 13-year-old Mongolian boy who died during a Patty Discover scuba diving experience while on vacation in Hawaii. Tescott, who had no previous ocean or diving experience, drowned January 5th after an alleged panic attack underwater during a DSD experience that must be discover scuba uh, in the open ocean with island divers Hawaii of Waikiki. DSDs are supposed to be conducted in confined or shallow water with one-on-one instructor to student ratio, but to Scott was uh, one of 20 people in that group that day and in a group of four with one instructor. His family has now filed a lawsuit claiming the boy drowned as a result of being left unattended by an instructor during an introductory open water scuba dive. The lawsuit accuses multiple defendants of gross negligence, including Tyler Brown, a Patty certified instructor who led the DSD excursion that day, Hawaii Water Sports, the tour company that sold the parents the package, uh, while assuring them that no experience was necessary and he would be supervised at all times. Sheila Jordan, the boat captain who allegedly failed to call emergency services quickly when she realized he was missing. The lawsuit also accuses Patty of gross negligence for allowing inexperienced children to scuba dive in open ocean with just one instructor to supervise and three other young divers. It, uh, it claims Patty is also liable for Tuscott's death. Um, uh, says the DSD program is dependent on precise supervision control of the student by an instructor. There's no margin for error. There are dive participants with no prior experience and only bare minimum skills demonstration before beginning dives. Almost all fatalities, students become separated from the instructor. Death occurs due to stress provoked panic. Sadly, this is an ongoing pattern, pattern with the same circumstances leading to student deaths that should prompt extensive review of standards and procedures for such programs. And I have to say I agree is that uh, I had always thought it was one-to-one and they're here validating it, saying that it's supposed to be. So then if it's supposed to be one-to-one, why are they doing one-to-four? If if you're an insurance company for one of these companies, shouldn't you just be canceling them outright? Uh, That are costing them exuberant amounts. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't insure them. No, I wouldn't. It's like what you can't follow the rules. You you needed to cheat, and this is what happens. 
Yeah. Kind of reminds me of when I went to Mexico. Yeah, they're 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 so desperate to get people in whatever tour excursion, you know, whether it's zip lining or scuba diving or snorkeling or tours. They're just it's just so high pressure and they'll say anything to get you in. Yeah. Cause that's not them at the end of that bungee rope or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So they're just trying to get you in. And then I, I think nobody, you know, uh, you know, they overbook because people cancel or don't show up and then they're afraid of disappointing somebody. So they're going to stretch it as much as they can. Yeah. And then another one that you had from, uh, undercurrent was, uh, talking about just after the Conception Fire disaster killing 34, an American diver lost her life in an early morning fire November 1st that sank the Red Sea Aggressor 1, also known as My Susanna, at Marasa Shana. Unlike the Conception tragedy, uh, passengers were woken by smoke in the cabins just past midnight when the fire was already well advanced. They roused the crew sleeping on deck above, and most of the people jumped in the sea without life jackets and were rescued by the Emperor Asthma Liveaboard, which was luckily moored nearby. The American diver, apparently a female employee of the U.S. Embassy in Zimbabwe, was overcome by smoke and died. The surviving 17 passengers and 12 crew members were without possessions, passports, money, and were taken to relevant embassies in Cairo. The resident manager of the Egyptian aggressor fleet is now in police custody in Marsa Alam. And then they mentioned that in their next issue in January, they'll, they'll have some more about it. So what's up with these live awards all of a sudden? I mean, it's kind of like, it seemed like cruise ships was having some bad PR. Now at the live aboards, I mean, this is the second one. In a short period of time and the cruise sleeping topside, as opposed to, is there a watch? That was the big discussion. And did they have fire alarms? So that aspect that, that t- they talked about is, hey, guys, if you're going on a liverboard, you might want to take your own with some sticky tape and stick it, you know, to give yeah. you some warning. Yeah. The other item I was actually thinking about is if I were something like that, even around the house in aviation, I can get the smoke kit. So if I were to have a smoke in my cockpit, I can put this hood on. And I have a limited amount of air to breathe and filter, but at least it's not in my eyes and ears. And you know what I'm saying? I've got some sentiments of control for a while that give yeah. you time, may give you time to respond. Yeah. So you, because part of it is going to be negotiating your way through the vessel to get out and looking at the floor plans of some of these vessels. That's, it's quite a, a jaunt you have to make. It's quite amazing if it's smoky in at night. Well, yeah, and I'm sure everything's got fancy interiors and carpeting and, you know, padding and, you know, all that stuff doesn't take long. I bet you it goes from a little bit of open flame to fully engulfed in less than a couple minutes. Wouldn't be a bit surprised. Yeah. And then if you combine that, say that people are carrying little devices that tend to have accidents and catch fire quite easily that maybe these combinations are just showing how, you know, because a lot of times any one thing going bad, like we find in scuba diving, uh, usually can survive, but you start adding these uh, factors together and it makes for a dangerous cocktail. Absolutely. Then a potential ban on scuba fishing is drawing support and skepticism. 
Senators fielded support, skepticism, and opposition from residents during a public hearing Wednesday requiring that a bill would ban scuba fishing. The bill introduced by Senator Sambian Perez and co-sponsored by Senator Clint Ridgell and Speaker Tanamua's Bain, but was that Barnes? Yeah, Barnes, seeks to prohibit the use of scuba gear while fishing in the waters around Guam. According to Perez, a similar ban has been enacted in the Commonwealth of North Marinas and Hawaii. The use of scuba gear allows fishers to harvest unnatural amounts of fish, depleting Guam's already threatening resources, Perez says. This in turn affects the island's coral reef and larger ecosystem. This relentless practice prevents fish from repopulating. Decision was made now will have far-reaching impacts. Whitney Hoot Coral Reef uh, Resiliency Coordinator with the Bureau of Statistics and Plans agrees Guam's fish population declining at alarming rates. A ban in addition to proper enforcement of the ban is key to support at-risk fisheries as well as the reefs. A diverse fish habitat is necessary for thriving coral reefs, he said, without fishing of or reefs. Guam's economy will suffer as well. Without this future, future generations will not be able to employ the beauty and benefits of Guam's coral reefs. Our island depends on the coral reefs, and they depend on us. Fisherman Co-op President Manny uh, Dienez disagrees with the bill, stating that residents are simply trying to provide food for the community. People scuba fishing are not being greedy. He said they were raised in a, was that Sahomra tradition that taught them to share. When will this issue of conservation end? He says fishing limits rather than bans can be explored. Most in favor, the majority of those in attendance spoke in support of the bans, citing environmental concerns and hope to preserve Guam's natural resources for the future. Cyril Hamilton, curator for Underwater World Guam, stated the business supports this ban with the amendment allowing scientific organizations permits to allow for limited scuba fishing for educational purposes. Underwater World utilizes scuba fishing to retrieve fish to educate tourists and the local community and the region and the region's marine life. Hamilton said allowing permits for this type of work would be reasonable. However, many shared skepticism that any ban would actually be enforced and point out the lack of funding to provide staff needed to support such a measure. According to Department of Agriculture Director uh, Chelsea Munin Brecht, issuing citations rather than violations, as the bill says, would be more effective. However, the agency would need more conservation officers to adequately enforce the ban. There are seven conservation officers. Agriculture needs 30 officers a minimum, but could make do with 20. Uh, well, my question is exactly what is scuba fishing? Do they mean out there with the slurp guns, taking fish to sell to aquarium shops? Are they somehow diving, showing them where to put the nets to grab fish? And are they talking spearfishing? So I, I was not quite sure what they meant by, you know, scuba fishing. Were you? I, I'm going to guess that what is going on is they're having people who are using scuba gear to fish. So I'm assuming it's spear. Because it made a point to saying that it was a it was a local uh, tradition, so that you've got some people who are probably doing it as a unofficial uh, form of income or support for the community. Do you uh, think there there are that many divers taking that many fish as opposed to somebody out there with a net? 
I don't think so. I think what this is is that this is everybody's looking for the boogeyman who causes the problem, and so they're so say they are genuinely noticing a, a decrease in fish, fishing population. I doubt there's that many scuba divers that are causing this. I'd be curious if anybody out there in Radio Land knows what they really mean by scuba fishing, especially for this instance. I'd like to know because I, you know, as much as the guys are looking for gooby ducks, they're out there looking for lobsters, you know, they're out there shooting sea lions to fish. It doesn't seem like they do enough to do any damage. So I'm curious how these guys are trying, you know, are able to do damage to that extent. Yeah. I I think that they just need to set limits. I mean, if you genuinely need to decrease the amount of fish being harvested as you set the limits, I'm guessing from what people are saying is that uh, there are people already violating the limits. So let's just do another law that isn't going to be enforced. Well, yeah, I mean, laws are really good. They prevent a lot of crimes, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> so, yeah, so that's that's what my guess is that the, the, there's a not enough refor- resources to enforce the current restrictions that they have. And the other thing is there's not enough education to convince the people there because people would help manage it on their own if if they believed in it. I mean, you know, it's like, speeding or any other uh public violation if it you know it's it's a you can never hire enough police officers to catch everybody breaking the law but if you convince people that they don't want to break it in the first place it's a it's a much better course of action yeah you would think though that if the fish population were decreasing in that area and that people needed it to live on they would husband themselves a little bit better because It'll only last so long if that keeps up, if what they're saying is correct. You know, self-preservation would tell you not to do something. Yeah. So I just, just out of curiosity, I said, well, okay, how many people are there in Guam? So Guam there is 167,767. And this was as of October 26, 2019. That's uh, a UN data. Uh, so how many people are really fishing? How many are divers? Right. I mean, if if our area is any indication, I think you'd a thousand would be generous. So you'd so it's at a thousand and say they all took five to ten uh fish a day. I mean you're Yeah. So uh, Karen in the chat room has uh put some stuff on uh Let's see. I'm trying to read through that. Uh, It says the prohibition of fishing with the use of self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, similar devices in the waters of Guam or any vessel in the waters of Guam. So spear, net, hand, that's all not allowed or wouldn't be allowed. Doesn't apply to commercial fishing though, right? Doesn't say. You know what I'm saying? If it, if oh yeah, the divers make that much, commercial fishermen must make a larger impact. Oh, I would certainly say so. Well, it'll be interesting. We have some follow up on that one. I'd be curious to know. 
inquiring okay. minds are in, yeah. interested. Or, or if they wanted to, uh, you could probably scuba fish right down here in Benton Harbor. Right here in our, our back door, you have uh, Benton Harbor business loop is shut down due to flooding. And we've talked about this a few times in the show. The I-94 business loop towards the end of Main Street, Benton Harbor was closed because of deep water spanning the entire width of the street. Local officials and experts said there are many reasons for the flooding. Uh, I would I would think water would be the cause. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> the primary one right off the bat. Yeah, so I, I think we need politicians to explain to us what causes flooding. Uh, but they're saying high lake levels, wind drainage issues, eventual snow melt could make the flooding worse. The St. Joe Rivers, Papa Rivers are both extremely high as well as the water table are high. So any rain or snow melt from the surface water just drains into an already saturated floodplain. I mean, it's really even simpler than that. They're trying to over talk it. It's that where that road is, is below the river level. And the drain lines that feed into the river have that current come in, which back feeds that since yeah. it's lower and fills it up. Now, the, the, there is a solution, and that's called put a duckbill uh-huh. uh, valve on it. What so that does is allow water to go out, but it can't come back in. Why don't you go to one of these meetings and go, uh, why don't you just do one of these? That's because I'm, I'm putting one of those on a pipe, hopefully this week. Yeah. But, I mean, that's what they, that's what they need to do. But w- what this smells like to me is somebody saying, I don't have enough money. And that's exactly what it is. It's not inexpensive to do that. Right. So, because uh, I, I think there's a few solutions. One is just raise the road. What, you, you raise that road another 12 inches, and, you know, there you go. That, you know, if, if the water level in the St. Joe and Lake Michigan raised by another foot or so, then, you know, no matter if duckbill or not, they're going to have water coming yeah. another way. What, what that means is it'll go past the first roundabout and flood uh-huh. downstream, but everybody at the Whirlpool Casino, not casino, but complex. <laughs> yeah. We'll be able to get there without getting their feet wet. Yeah. Because that one parking lot, you cannot get out of your car unless you're wearing hip boots. But you don't. <laughs> Seriously. It's, I mean, it's up to almost to, past the hubcaps in that one oh, area. Wow. Wow. Huh. I have to ask some of my friends who work there and see what they've, they, because I've, I've, you know, gone down the street there and, uh, you try and go real slow. And the first time I saw it, there was flooding in the streets, and they also had the sprinklers running. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, what is this? And that's when they do the fire hydrant testing also. Yeah, fire hydrant testing that day. Yeah, they they open the fire hydrants, and yeah. Uh, so let's see. I think if we can get to it. We can't make the lake any lower. We can't unsaturate the floodplain. Nothing we can really do at nature's mercy. Uh, we've been working on a more long-term solution, but I don't know what it's going to be yet because we really haven't identified the problem. But, yeah, this sounds like, hey, give me give me a million dollars so we can hire a friend of mine to go and do research. That's what this sounds like. Am I a skeptic? Am I, am I, am I yeah, well, too, too yeah, a little bit. <laughs> okay. Well, I, th- th- this sounds like a little bit better of uh, use of water resources. 
Uh, Free Diver stashes bottles of underwater wine in uh, Grand Traverse Bay. Uh, I wonder how they do that during the winter here. Yeah. says, it's not often your career you've built pairs perfectly one of your favorite hobbies, but that's what sweet, uh, that's a sweet spot that Hero Mara, M-I-U-R-A, created for himself to begin free diving Grand Traverse Bay, carrying bottles of his favorite Riesling to stash an underwater wine cellar. Myra, 52, is a longtime wine tasting room manager at Chateau Grand Traverse. For more than 20 years, he's cultivated his own love for wines and helped thousands of customers find pours they love at one of the old Mission Peninsula's oldest wineries. About nine years ago, he and a buddy from work began taking wine with them on their free diving trips to East Grand Traverse Bay. Not familiar with the adrenaline rush of free diving? Think scuba diving with no scuba gear and no air tanks, just mass fins and empty set of lungs that help you drop to the bottom. Myra says he's trained his body to be underwater for a few minutes before he has to come up for air. Wine trips started as a lark, just something adventurous to do. There's man-made structures. We're not revealing exactly where it is resting in the bottom of one area of the bay where Myra and his friends would hide their bottles short of a makeshift wine cellar. We would take a few bottles of wine during the summer of the bay. We'd leave a few bottles on one trip, take one or two back to the surface. Wine stored underwater really didn't taste different, they surmised. It was just a fun quest for a couple people who like free diving in the bay and were steep underwater drop-offs made for a great diving area. Since Myra loves Riesling, he stashed bottles of those tasty whites. Sometimes he'd bring down a couple bottles of Peninsula's traditional cherry wine, but they're just used as decoy bottles, he explained, to throw other nosy divers off the trail of his nicer vintages. Over time, Myra found that he was... There was no honor among divers at the bottom of the Grand Traverse Bay. More and more, he notices underwater statues being raided, decoy bottles as well as the Rieslings. For his goal for 2020, find a new secret spot. And not tell anybody. Yeah. Uh, and he goes on, and they t- give him a little bit of history and uh, where uh, his childhood growing up in Japan and some other things. But... uh yeah, <laughs> they don't tell anybody or put him out a little bit different. Now, the, the disadvantage he has as a, as a free diver, uh, he's probably not going to be able to get to as many spots as a regular diver can. And once people know that he's doing that, first time I read it, I thought people were uh, taking his uh, bottles and pranking him, like putting fake ones. <laughs> like take... Take a bottle, empty it, and then put vinegar, and then put it back, and see if he you know, how long it take him to, to nasty, nasty. <laughs> you didn't hear it from me. <laughs> but, I, but to me, if somebody had found that and didn't know what it was, they'd have taken all the bottles, not just one. Oh yeah, yeah. I unless you'd have read about in the paper and go, oh, that's what it is. And if it's not obvious that. I mean, I guess if they were all in a row stuck in a certain spot, you would associate it. But if I just saw a bottle laying out in the water, we'd certainly grab it. My monies would, that, that stash would have been gone. Yeah. Not knowing it had been gone. Not for the wine, but just for the bottle and the corks. Yeah. You'd be like, wow, you know, this shipwreck sank just a couple of years ago. Well, if it had been shipwrecks, yeah, I wouldn't have been taking the bottles off because I would have been protected. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they, they exactly. But yes, now yeah. that, that in the bay there, is that a river? 
I don't know. But again, during the winter, does he leave it down there during the winter? I mean, because that ought to be damn well chilled by the time you get it again. Yeah. I think it's kind of like a, uh, almost like what you do for a uh, what geocache. You know, you take a bottle down, you bring a bottle up type of thing. I, I have an idea that's kind of what he was doing. And it was probably uh-huh. kind of fun. You have a dinner party. You could say, this has been in the in the bay for six months. You know, what he can also do, though, is if he's doing it only for like a year at a time, you know the quirks and stuff are going to be pretty darn good. It might be interesting to leave it down there, you know, take five bottles, one year, two year, three year, four year, five year, and see if uh, if the corks, in fact, do leak. Remember all these items you've been talking about where they're getting hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars for a bottle of champagne? Do your yeah. own experiment for time. You know, I, maybe that's what I need to do, contact my local winery friends in the area and pitch that to them. Of course, we'd, it, we'd have to have a percentage for uh, – uh, tasting and quality control. Well, absolutely. Yeah. So I'd say, I was going to say 10%, but I'm thinking more 35. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He'd probably sock you for the meal that you're going to have to go with the wine to compensate. I mean, to, uh, yeah. equal it out though. Yeah. Well, how about this? I'm, I'm not taking the right plane trips, but, uh, uh, traveler.com.au is saying uh, that shipwrecks are showing up on airline in-flight maps. Said depending on how your flight is going and whether you're engrossed in the latest uh, movie, uh, you may be noticing that there are interesting objects on the in-flight map. So, uh, you know, they'll have, uh, you know, the towns you're going over and different landmarks. But when you start going over water, they said that there's, not a whole lot to point out, so they've started adding shipwrecks to the in-flight maps. Uh, they said uh, it, an American technology company operated by, uh, that are used in British Airways, American Airlines, and Ethiopian Airlines are created by Rockwell Collins, a multinational firm based in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, whose engineers have hit upon shipwrecks as an innovative way to add points of interest to otherwise featureless sections of the plane's journey, long miles over open water. Shipwrecks are marked as an alternative to the in-flight movies, not supposed to give nervous flyers palpitations. <laughs> yeah, so you see that, and you're like, <laughs> now do they only list shipwrecks, or how about sunken planes? <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't make him real comfortable. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. This is, uh, you know, TWA Flight 175. I would rather look at a movie than a shipwreck locations from 35,000 feet. I, but and if you're going to do that, you might as well read National Geographic with the pictures. I, I rarely, I don't anticipate that anybody is really sitting there uh, watching screenshots. Map. It's screenshots. Oh, look at this. Yeah, I'm going to come well, back they, here later. Well, they, do they give you a parachute and some gear and you can, like, <laughs> jump out? Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that they might be quite deep, too. I was wondering about that. That's, I just wondered if it gave details on the depth, the type of wreck. Yeah, they, they have some. sort of interesting. So they had one. They have the historic Horan. 
in the Baltic Sea. It sank in 1676, reason for sinking war. And then the article I talk about, uh, the wreck lies 26 meters down. So that one's not too bad. They also have the CSS Alabama is on the map. Sank in 1864 during war off the Normandy coast. Uh, let's see. The RMS Douro near Cape, was it Finisterre, Spain, 1882. It was a, uh, sunk by collision. The SS Egypt in the English Channel, 1922, by collision. And let's see. Uh, salvaged in the 1930s. 170 meters of water. Wow, that's a, that one's all. So they go, they go on. They show they they list a few of them. So I guess if they get if they had some detail, I don't know. I guess on a plane you're bored enough. I mean, if you read those crappy magazines, and I guess who's to say you're not looking at the map? It would be different. Yeah, just give everybody internet. Give the free internet that you'll have happy customers. Yeah, free good movies. And then let's see this one. I I was kind of concerned. Let me get the pull up the actual. There's there's a couple articles, and I don't know which one I put in the show notes, but I I like the one that was on M Live better. Lake Michigan shipwreck could be world's most intact wooden schooner ever found. Shipwreck found almost by accident, sitting at 300 feet deep in northern Lake Michigan, is being described as one of the most intact wooden schooners schooners in the world. The discovery of cargo hauling W.C. Kimball lost in 1891 gale with four people aboard was announced this week with details, photos, and, be- and videos being shared on social media. Shipwreck hunter and author Ross Richardson of Lake Ann made the initial find. Uh, this spring, he and diver Stephen Weimer of Milwaukee joined a group of other wreck enthusiasts to document its position. The W.C. Kimball's a true representation of Great Lakes schooner, Richardson says on a video. She was built in Lake Michigan and spent her entire life on Lake Michigan. Despite its nearly pristine conditions, there are no identifying marks in a schooner. Figuring out which ship they discovered took a lot of maritime sleuthing. It meant pouring through old records of lost ships, trying to narrow it down by looking for clues that would tell if their mystery ship had been built before the Civil War or afterwards. Richardson details the underwater discovery and search for Kimball's identity on his website. But the initial find itself is just a momentary reading in its boat sonar screen. More than a year ago, Richardson was crossing northern Lake Michigan in September 2018, headed to South Manitoulo Island for a day of wreck hunting when he noticed a small blip in a sonar screen. It showed something that was resting in about 300 feet of water and rising 90 feet off the lake's bottom. Richardson made a note of the GPS coordinates, then went on with his day. Fast forward to this May when Richardson returned to the spot with Weimer, a technical diver, underwater photographer, Brent Topkins, maritime artist, and diver Cal, oh, what's that, Cothrad, and ROV pilot Brian Dort. After descending the wreck, Weimer described the W.C. Kimball as the most intact shipwreck I have ever encountered. During the dive and ROV-led inspection, the team noticed that Kimball's lifeboat was still attached to its stern. This led them to believe it was either unreachable at the time the wind schooner went down or its crew had already gone overboard. The Kimball built across the lake in Manitowoc, Wisconsin in 1888 was just three years old when she sailed out in her last voyage the evening of May 7, 1891. She was laden with 200 barrels of salt, 
and had 250,000 wooden shingles stacked on her deck when she set out to round the Leelanau Peninsula, according to Richardson's website. The next morning, the northwest gale was lashing the Great Lakes. The Kimball vanished along with her captain and three others aboard. Days later, bits, bits of debris began washing near the top of Leelanau Peninsula. There's some speculation that the Kimball had been run over by a larger ship in the storm, but a recently discovered condition stamps out that fate. Artist and diver Cal Cothrad said the Facebook post this week he was happy not to just be part of the team that discovered and identified the Kimball, but happy to be able to paint the wreck as well. I, w- I want to congratulate my good friend Ross Richardson on what may prove to be one of the most significant shipwreck discoveries ever in the Great Lakes, a little schooner nobody's heard of. Why is it so significant? Because it's the most intact 19th century wooden schooner shipwreck in the world. No other vessel of this type has ever been as well preserved. Well, I did post the pictures. Let me take a look because I tried to look at them early. Now, oh, that's a painting. Is that a painting there? The one on the bottom that uh, shows an intact wreck? Yeah, I did not see any uh, photo photo. Now, is that what you think uh, Max Rec is? Would you say similar to that? Uh, uh, let me get to the big picture here again. It'd be hard to tell. With ours, I don't see where the windlass is on this one. In the fall, Dan? Do you? Okay. No, they, they – well, yeah, it's – I couldn't tell if he just didn't paint it on or it wasn't there. Yeah. It's a very shallow draft. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks our... like it just settled down to the bottom. Yeah. I would have thought with all that salt, that might be a little heavy, especially wet, and that sucker might just, you know, nose down, but obviously it didn't. Well, sort of like a leaf, doesn't it? It looks like it might have gone right. ching, 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 ching. Well, you, if you think of it loaded with wood on the deck, and they probably stacked that wood as high as they could, I mean, there's probably some thought like, oh, it will come off in a storm or or something. But what it might have done is that it it be, it, it lost its fate <laughs> to buoyancy uh, when the rails go down below the water, but all the lumber would float off. Yeah. yeah. So, so once that lumber is no longer, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you know, ice in a glass. Once the above the waterline mass is gone, uh, it probably was fairly neutral buoyant. You know, okay, I'm looking at the video, by the way. Now, the picture is really nice, but the picture ain't what it's like because it's encrusted with quagga and zebras. Well, so, I mean, it's, it's nice and pristine, but it's got a, a heck of a covering. Yeah. Oh, it's pretty nice, though. Uh, I'm looking at that now, and it's, it's pretty darn good. Uh, the boat that, to the outside has got a couple of holes in it. And just covered up with zebras. Yeah, I'm, but, uh, if, if if I lose you, I'm trying to uh, watch one of the videos, which yeah. normally it would be screaming at me. So let me close this. There's raw. It's still not too bad, though. I mean, it's not totally covered. There's nice clear sections. I'm hope mm-hmm. they're going to the forward end now, and I'm trying to find out what their uh, anchor looks like. I'd be very curious. If it had windows, the windows are blown out. Oh, the anchors are stowed. Well, yep. Yeah, just I, like, I just got 
I just got to it. I I love it when we see the mass. Yeah, yeah. So how many well, this, vessels in Lake Michigan are there with the mass still standing? There's a couple, but not. I don't think not a twin mass set up like this one. Now, is it, does the Hume have its mass still standing? I I'm not sure. There's yeah. a couple I know that you can be on the the mast at 90 feet before you hit the wreck. Yeah, but so uh, there's there's more than two. So especially this is pretty mass. cool. Yeah, and again, looking at the the decking, there, there's muscles and stuff, but very nice. I wonder if they took pictures on the inside also. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the house on it, and there's not a ton of muscles. I mean, there's some muscles, but it's. Right. Oh, yeah, that's not bad. I'd like to find something like that. That'd be fine. There, there's the anchor hanging on the side there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's nice. Yeah, there's, there's the windlass there. Did you see it? Yeah. Did they go through and say how they uh, were able to identify it? They did in this article. Uh, uh, head over to Ross Richardson's website, which I think is, let me see if I can find the link back again. But uh, it's like under, you know, mysteries, Michigan mysteries. Uh, Karen was saying one of the masks on the Hume is down. Yeah, there was one that was down, but I thought there was another one that was up. But I'm, I'm, I may be wrong on that one. Yeah, let me see. Come on, website. Yeah, michiganmysteries.com is Ross Richardson's site. And we'll have to have him on the show again. Uh, we had him when he did that uh, discovery. God, it's been several years ago he was on. So. Yeah, uh, he has he has a nice article on the disappearance. He's got some more videos. Uh, over the next few months, Richardson reviewed the underwater images and old records of missing shipwrecks until he stumbled across a missing schooner which fit the description, the Emily. The Emily was a small two-masted coastal schooner that vanished in the gale while traveling from Milwaukee to Sand Bay in early April 1857. She disappeared with her captain, his wife, crew of four unknown sailors. No notice Emily was ever found. Old shipping records indicate Emily had a clipper bow. Oh, but that's not the, that's not what it was. Over the winter, Richardson was visited by a friend and fellow shipwreck hunter, Paul Ahorn. Upon reviewing Wilmer's images together, a horn pointed out that he thought was iron rope, the equivalent of today's steel cable, obscured by quagga mussels. Uh, iron rope wasn't used in the Great Lakes vessel before the end of the Civil War. Oh, crap, I have a pop-up. Not from his website, from my computer. Uh, since Emily disappeared in 1857, there's no way the iron rope would be pres present on that wreck. Um, they went through the time-consuming search of Patrick Laberty's Great Lakes Maritime Collection. 6,000 schooner records looked at individually. Many of those records cross-referenced with other Great Lakes databases and old newspaper archives. 
At the end of the three-week search, the W.C. Kimball was a leading candidate among nearly dozens or so possibilities. The schooner bow was significant, narrowing down which vessels could be. The clipper bow was featured in many schooners built in Manitowoc and later Milwaukee. The lifeboat's present was also significant because the vessel was in several miles of multiple shores. If the crew was capable or even still aboard, they would have assessed a small boat and abandoned ship. The fact that this vessel sank with the lifeboat still attached to the stern tells us that either the lifeboat wasn't accessible, possibly because of ice, or the crew wasn't aboard the vessel when she foundered. Oh, they've got a nice photo of the uh, W.C. Kimball. Mm-hmm. That looks like it's at a dry dock. Or or at least docked for the winter. Do you see it? No, I didn't it look at like that it's, one. Yeah, it's on... Uh, let's see, I'm going to put this into the chat room. So you can follow along, but there's a picture well a little about three quarters of the way down and it's black and white and it shows it it looks like it's it's like it's like on a beach so it's like it it's been i can't tell if it was before it launched or if it's been pulled up a slipway for working on it so good job ross and team Always good to see people are out looking, keeping their eyes on, on it. Whoop. There you go. Sometimes you got to hit some keys. Oh, and then I did this out of order because then we have another one, which is a, uh, there are some discussions about the missing sister ship of Sweden's most iconic shipwreck. And I think we've talked about this a few times. Swedish divers discovered two wrecks believed to be warships sunk in the 17th century. I think at least one of them can be linked to the Vasa, the iconic Swedish shipwreck that sank on its main voyage. When I came down as a first diver, I saw a wall five to six meters high, and I came up, and there was a massive warship. Diver and maritime archaeologist Jim Henson told the AFP, adding it was a thrilling feeling. The two wrecks were found in a Swedish archipelago outside the town of Voxholm in the strait leading to Stockholm, at least one of the ships is believed to be the sister ship of Sweden's most famous warships, the Vasa, 69-meter ship carrying 64 cannons and sank on its main voyage in 1628. Can you imagine finding a ship with 64 cannons on it? No. I, I mean, mean I, I would be so high, uh, I'd have probably embolized down there because I'd have been so happy or something, going, ah, I think what would have happened is you'd have sucked those tanks down to nothing. They'd be like pancakes, and they'd be going, how did he do that? Wow. Did it say how deep they were? Mm-hmm. We can see where the timber has been cut down, and we can go back and look at the archives. Good chance to tell what the ship is. Well, I'm looking at this guy in the water, and the shoreline is 200 feet from where he is from the shore. Yeah. And he's bringing up a wooden sample of the timbers. Yeah. So what the hey? That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, hopefully they keep sharing. I like to see stuff like that. Oh, yeah. We need to come back and look at that a little bit. It also looks like this picture. Do you know the one I'm talking about? The guy is handling a piece of timber. All the yeah. guys in the, in the water. 
that's an airline. There's a, there's somebody else down there on surface applied air. It looks like. Yeah, there's somebody in the water, and there's the guy on the on the on the boat, the vessel. But if you look at the yellow line, mm-hmm. it goes past the guy in the water, out maybe 15 feet away, and goes down. Oh, you think so? You think that was like the surface diver? I well, there's a there's a guy on the surface, but there's an airline going down. And if that if the, his hand and stuff looks like there's somebody behind that piece of wood too. Oh yeah, I think shadow. so. I can see kind yeah. of like a little shadow. Yeah. So yeah, he was could there be Camo's too though. Yeah. Camo line. Well, that's awesome. I mean, I can't imagine coming up a wall of wood, looking over, and there's cannon laying on a deck. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I just that just is beyond me of how you would feel. Well, and you look, this is not like some unpopulated river. I mean, look at that seawall there. Somebody had to take some time to put that in. And you have to believe people have been fishing. I mean, wouldn't you kind of at some point go, what do I keep getting my my tackle caught on? Yeah. Or like like us here, there was a lot of uh, net fishing in the rivers. Yeah. Wouldn't this wreck just have tons of net on it? Yeah, I thought so. Well, more power to them, but I can't imagine how – I can't imagine the feeling they had. It, you'd, I'd still be grinning. <laughs> yeah. Well, how – 64 cannons. So somebody had to count those. Yeah. Oh, the, the Vasa had 64 cannons. That's what they're talking about. But if it's a sister ship, I mean, even a you little sister, think. it, it yeah. would have been some. Okay. Well, very cool. So that does it for scuba in the news. That's awesome stuff. We've had the awesome uh, stuff. Some activity in the chat room. Thank you, Karen, for putting that. And Eric, was it Eric? No, he that was last week. So yeah, or some of our regulars. Uh, maybe, maybe they got snowed in. <laughs> Can't get out. And then our uh, our. Uh, Southern Hemisphere listeners are probably actually out diving if they're smart. Well, that's true. It's that they're spring and stuff. Yeah, they got. I've got to be getting pretty close. How about this time change? How evil was that? Well, it's like we finished supper and you look outside and the wife says, "Is it time to go to bed yet?" It's so dark, and that's at five thirty. I, I, I oh gosh, during the week I, I pretty much. I mean, if I didn't have the podcast, I'd be sleeping right now. I just have no motivation to do anything. Get up, go to work, come home, sleep. I just can't believe how often Friday, Thursday comes around. I said, wait a minute, we just did this. We just Where had a Thursday. The Where's the time going? Yeah. I, I just know. remember when you were in school, in high school, oh. it's like, oh, God. it's. I mean, they don't realize so it's going to be over any time now. And they're, they're going to be graduating in just a couple of months. Yep. It just, and what, Christmas is what, 40-something days? If it's bad, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's the time. You know, old, old men thing to talk about, but yeah, it's, it's certainly ripping along. Oh, yeah. So do you have a dive safety story for this week? Well, you can have a choice here. Uh, 
You want to talk about a den or you want to talk about float Sam? Oh, we're going to do the den. That's, a, that's informative. And okay. actually, I did learn a little bit. Let me go kick it up here. Da, 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 da. Take us time. Okay. This is a DIN or a yoke regulator. It's time to know the difference. There was a time when every regulator was fitted to a tank valve by means of a yoke fitting, officially known as an international A-clamp. Tank valve has no ring, and most divers have been affected by annoying lakes and blow no rings because they wear and fray. A DIN connection solved this problem, and that's why regulators are now available in both DIN and yoke configuration. Now, a DIN fitting regulator has a permanently captive O-ring and screws securely into the tank valve. Technical divers prefer them because the O-rings rarely wear or blow, and the simple shape of the DIN regulator devoid of the yoke means there's less likelihood of entanglement with lines and gear. Now, another plus is DIN fitting regulators with the required number of extra screw threads are rated for use on suitable tanks with higher pressures, up to 4,350 PSI. So using those tanks, you can make longer dives. It says never use a yoke regulator on one of these high-pressure tanks, even if you can find an adapter to fit it, because the pressure is just too high to be considered safe. With the rising DIN regulator popularity by the technical diving community, you may think your American-bought yoke regulator will not fit tanks provided overseas. But don't worry. Most standard pressure DIN tank valves worldwide are convertible and accept the yoke regulator by means of a screw-in plug. Some of these adapters offered by dive operators in distant countries look a little tired, so prudent divers carry their own adapter. They cost only a few dollars at your local dive shop, and they take up no spare space in your carry-on. If you do decide to buy a new DIN-fitting regulator, you may have problems in the U.S. or Caribbean because most tanks are A-clamp fittings only and are not convertible. So, if you have one of those, you need to add a yoke adapter also available from your dive shop. So, both DIN and yoke-fitting regulators are usually made from chromed brass. If you use a yoke adapter made of lightweight aluminum, don't leave it on your DIN regulator. Because if you're storing it for a long period of time, the presence of seawater, you'll have electrolysis between the different metals, and it can make the yoke adapter impossible to remove later. A cautionary note, <clears throat> excuse me, in many European uh, Union countries, but not the UK, tanks designated for nitrox have a different thread called M26. Those for air are M25. Check with your dive operator aboard to make sure they have tanks that are both for air and nitrox. Or I should say the tanks are used for both air or nitrox. In which case, they'll be suitable to use with either a DIN or yoke regulator. M26 DIN fitting regulators are normally color-coded green and are compatible with 100% oxygen and are usually the exclusive providence of technical divers. So that's your word of wisdom today for den versus yoke and why you know the difference. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that there were two different threads. Uh, uh, I all thought those they two tanks, I did not, same. yeah. Yeah, 26 huh. and a 25. Huh. And like they I say, mean, 
it's never a bad thing to carry adapters for what you do have in case you need one. Mm. And if you got yours, you know it fits and you know it's in good shape. If, if you have a choice when you're buying tanks, get the tanks that can do both. Because I've got one tank that way. And, and while I've rarely had to take it open for the DIN, uh, it is nice having that option. Uh, Karen said that she loves her DIN regulators and HP steel tanks, but it can become a challenge here in the U.S. because yoke is so common that if you're a DIN diver, you pretty much uh, have to have your own tanks because most I don't think most shops have uh, DIN without special order. And yeah, so you so now you're dealing with adapters, and yeah. as we know with cell phones, those are no fun. You you know, <coughs> yeah. something else and. So never, never seems to be quite the best, but uh, I would put that as a, as a, as a nice item on your save a dive kit. Mm-hmm. And that goes with the searching where you're going to go is you want to make sure, you know, what's your plans for how you're going to get your air. So a good article. Well, as a side note, I had one item. It's called float some and jet some. Did you know mm-hmm. there's a pill to treat the bends? The U.S. Navy announced it's researching the possibility that the common malaria prophylactic, the antibiotic dioxaline, which a lot of people use for acne, may work as a treatment for decompression sickness, preventing severe effects. The studies are just beginning, so stay tuned. I didn't know that. That's quite interesting. So uh, the who, second item, I'm sorry? So who, I'm just going to say, who's the diver? who intentionally has to get the bend so they can see if the pill works. And well, maybe you get the skin bends and find out, you know. They're not too bad. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. next item okay. under that is more full-face snorkeling mask bands. The Pride of Maui joins a growing list of tour boat operators that have decided not to allow full-face snorkel masks on board. While a state committee continues to study whether they may contribute to snorkeling depths. In September, a 64 year old Texas man drowned while using a full face mask in calm waters off one of the beaches in Maui. In another incident in October, a 33 year old Canadian man died while snorkeling with a full face mask at another bay. So that still continues to be an interesting issue. I have used them. I've not had a problem, but by the same token, I'm not spending hours playing with them. And and I remember we covered this before and talked about some of the different use cases where it could be a problem. It be it seems like it's something that could be adequately tested. Uh, it would be expensive to test, but you could put sensors at different points of the mass and do a trial and then have divers of different physical conditions try them out in different breathing patterns because there's been some talk that maybe people aren't breathing the right way. They're breathing too shallow, which is causing for heavier gases to con- to collect mm-hmm. into the mask. Uh, and therefore that they black out. But I just don't think we have the, the enough information, but it doesn't seem like it'd be that hard to actually do a study. Well, if they black out, I just wonder how many are wearing flotation. Because if you pass out and your head's in the water, snorkel's still providing air. Yeah. Yeah. It so it poses another question for me. 
another little tidbit of information. Assuming you're diving in salt water with your gear and or camera, no freshwater rinse. So what do you do? They are suggesting that you wisely suggest that in the absence of a freshwater rinse on a dive boat, it's better to keep your camera in a bucket of salt water or seawater between dives. Failing that, wrap your camera in a wet towel, which will stop it from drying out before you give it a chance to give it a proper rinse in fresh water. It's easier to rinse out salt water than to dissolve encrusted salt crystals that may have then been pushed into crevices under the depth of pressure. So key item, keep it wet until you can get into the fresh water to rinse it out, basically. And that's really not a bad idea. Uh, other item talked about, the Britannica claims another knife on September 29th. A British company director, Tim Saval, 61, died during a dive on the sister ship of the Titanic, sunk in the Greek waters in 1916 when it was a hospital ship. The 410-foot deep wreck is on the bucket list of many technical divers and claimed the life of legendary technical diving pioneer and British company director Carl Spencer back in 2009. So basically that tells me no matter how good you are, accidents happen. Yeah. I've done this dive 100 times before. Yeah, well. Uh, Shark attack victim? Alan DeTora was declared missing after he failed to return from a night dive off the coast of Kalalea, Kona, in Hawaii, October the 4th. His clothes and diving equipment, recovered from the ocean close to the marker buoy he was using, reveal signs of possible damage from a large shark. There have been 13 instances involving people and sharks off Hawaii in 2019. In May, sharks killed a California man swimming off of Maui. In the meantime, Detora is still missing. And they found his gear. He's presumed dead. And another fatality on closed circuit. Dr. Fiona Sharp, 55, of Perth, Australia, a well-known face in the technical diving world and hyperbaric doctor, who also gave insights into the medical aspects of diving to undercurrent, died October 17 during a solo leisure dive to 295 deep, feet deep on a reef at Bonaire. She was found unresponsive at 80 feet without the breathing loop mouthpiece in her mouth. She was using an inspiration rebreather. The dive had progressed normally until she reached her first deco stop. So it's still amazing to me how many well-known and current divers pass away using rebreathers. But I shouldn't say that's negative because it happens on open circuit also. Yeah, yeah, it's just... The the other nice part I got on lithium-ion battery fire update, Uh uh, two readers wrote to Undercurrent to say the information in their mid-monthly email was incorrect and that if a fire occurs in an airplane cabin, the FAA instructs flight attendants to use water or CO2-laced soda pop. Reason being, water-based products are the most readily available and are appropriate since lithium ions contain very little lithium metal that reacts with water. 
The water would also cool the adjacent areas and prevent the fire from spreading. Hmm. So I had no clue about that one. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. Well, that's where, that's where somebody just has to test it and figure out what's the best way to handle it. But yeah, I, I think well, for them, one of it is like trying to avoid panic and then you don't want smoke in the cabin. Yeah. So if there's some way you can help contain it or at least reduce it. Yep. And the last item they had was Mission Impossible, question mark. Egypt's tourism authority has announced that visiting divers will be instructed not to feed the fish break the coral, throw garbage or food or leftovers or chemicals into the sea, and that they will strictly monitor the work of companies that organize dive tours. The Reef World Foundation say that in its first year in Egypt, it hopes to reach 30 operators, train 150 dive guides, and through them raise awareness of the sustainability best practice among 30,000 tourists. Yeah, you gotta you gotta start. If you don't start, you'll never get there. Yeah, if you so, don't tell them, they won't do it. Yeah, and it's education because as we see, I think most. I mean, that's why this discover scuba is so popular. Is people don't plan, and we plan less than we ever have before. They want to show up, have a good time, have somebody take them there, and they're just not investing in the education. So you've got to figure out how do you get that education to them as quickly as possible so they're safe and then not destroying the environment. Yeah. And that's going to be a challenge. You're going to have to be a babysitter. Uh, I don't know of any other way around it, but if you're a dive operator and you're too afraid of losing a potential customer to really enforce it, then you know, you're going to potentially have some problems. Well, thank so, you. Those are good. Uh, do we have anything that we need to plug? I think we've got, was it Mary Freebed is going on this weekend? I'm not sure. I've been incapacitated, so I've not been keeping up with that like I'd like to. So is that this weekend, 16th? Is it? Oh, next weekend. Oh, actually, I'm, huh, the 23rd. See, I've I've got, the reason I thought it was, because it's always opposite one of my robotic events, but it must not be this year because I got the robotic event this weekend. So that's why I'm... Right. I'm I understand they're going to have a, or try to have a uh, preserve meeting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm planning on, on going up if you want to ride with me. What is that? The 17th? That's, yeah, Sunday. Oh, that's this Sunday too. I'll make a note and I'll let you know though. Okay. Yeah. We, we can go and do that. Uh yeah, because they were talking about Saturday or Sunday. Well, Saturday I got a robotics event I'm refereeing. So, right. Uh, well, I did get Sunday some good news from better. my doctor visit yesterday, by the way. Oh, yeah? <clears throat> yeah, he said the fractured screws in my neck <laughs> and the plate is <laughs> yeah. moving around a little bit. Isn't a big deal because the vertebrae is fused on the one part, not too much on the other one. But what I've got is one hell of a case of whiplash. Ah. So he said, don't do anything really stupid like jump out of airplanes. But I, I said, well, can I dive? <laughs> and he says, knowing you, you're going to anyway. Yeah, so so that means yes. That means, hey, I'm good for the turkey dive for sure. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, good. I need to make sure I got all my stuff together too. Uh, yeah, I was actually thinking trying to get in this weekend, at least just to get wet, maybe at Pawpaw or something. Mm -hmm. So are you working this weekend? 
Well, I've got, yeah, I've got the robotics thing on uh, Saturday and then Sunday. Other than heading up to the preserve meeting, I really have to get some painting done. This house, <laughs> house remodel project is yeah. just taking forever. And if I don't get it done in the winter, then I'll have to do it again in the summer. I, I've, I've already given up on the win, the uh, windows. I'm going to have to do those when the weather gets warm. Last time, uh, the last window I did, I opened it up and we ended up with a, it must it felt like a thousand flies in the house. It took me two weeks of fly strips to finally get them all down. And I didn't have the window out for more than a few hours. So yeah. Yeah. It's so, uh, yeah. It's, uh, I, I see Carrie had a comment on the dioxaline. Uh-huh. I just, I, I'm just looking at some of the notes. I'm just catching up. I looking at the board here. Yeah. yeah. I know. Cause uh, it's, it's um, used for acne for sure. But it seemed like if you thought about that and they're going to be testing it for the possibility, would it hurt to take some? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, as long as there's not too many side effects. What I'm always worried about is some of these things is that something that's supposed to have one effect really has a different effect, and that's just because it's not adequately tested why. Yeah. You don't, you don't, nobody tests things that they think are going to be bad. It's something that's always assumed to be good. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I mean, we're we're experimenting every day. (laughs) Anytime you go out. Well, I just look at the vaping issue. Uh, They found found on one aspect that there's one particular oil they're using that appears to probably be the culprit in these uh, vaping issues with the lungs. And since I don't do that or participate, I can't remember the name of the the substance. But if I were a vapor, I would look for that article and uh, stay away from that particular substance. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's crazy. People are thinking that they can they put themselves in guinea pigs without any, you know, monitoring, understanding what all the risks are. From day one. I'm sorry, did I lost you? I, no, I just said from day one, it's been that way, though. Yeah. Yep. I mean, what was it? Tomatoes used to be considered poisonous or something? Yeah. I've always heard that one. Well, well, how about copper? I mean, it wasn't too long ago, copper was the boogeyman. You remember that where that was on the EPA watch list that copper might be toxic because it was antibacterial? Really? I had oh, not yeah. heard that. To me, I've always heard copper is a great thing. They well, were talking about thing. making uh, filters with the copper, so you put it over your nose. So, yeah. it, well, like you said, it would kid viruses as it goes through your breathing part. Well, what what the from what I understand, the the issue with copper was that because it had this an, antibacterial effect that they could document that bacteria on copper would die. Mm-hmm. So somebody, I think, kind of ex- extrapolated and said, well, if that dies, what else dies? So they were looking at it for uh, what's the potential risk for copper piping. But uh, the EPA had had some tests done, and the end result was it was inconclusive. They couldn't determine that copper had any effect negatively or positively on uh, uh you know, poisoning or so they just said, eh, no, we have no change. Inconclusive is a terrible word to attach to something 
because then you don't know if it is or it isn't. Yeah, it it just meant that the data just didn't show anything, which is to me. Uh, sometimes I just think of it as neutral. You know, it's just like yeah, they 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 basic yeah, because a lot of times you have an assumption, and you expect it to either go one way or the other, and when it goes neither, you're kind of like, well, you, you can't say it's good, you can't say it's bad, but not everything has to be good or bad. I mean, it can be just what it is. So. Yep. As a side note, Karen made a note that that material I must be talking about is vitamin E oil. And that's yeah. odd because vitamin E is a supplement lots of people take because it's supposed to be good to, you know, for when you get older, it's supposed to be good for you. Yeah. But the the thing with the vaping is you're, you're changing its state or not even necessarily changing your state. You're vaporizing, you know, kind of like you're, you're, you're suspending it. So something that you ingest, you're now getting into your lungs. And that could be what the difference is. Now she just said, if you inhale it to your lungs, it's not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, well, that's, that's like water. Water tastes good if you drink it, but you don't want to breathe it. Yeah. Yeah. We've all had water go down the wrong way and that's not a fun day. Yeah, they said it's used to emulsify THC oil, uh, the cannabis type. So, yeah. Well, if and, you're enjoying, and we the... know that because it's purely a uh, academic investigation oh. aspect to help prove that. Yeah, no, nobody uses <laughs> THC. That's overrated. Uh, if if you're enjoying the show, we hope that you follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed, on Twitter at scuba obsessed. You can visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. If you have feedback for the show, the show at Scuba Obsessed. And uh, we could certainly use your support if you are financially able to provide it. Uh, we are on Patreon. So if you go to scubaobsessed.com website, click on over the Patreon links and give us a little bit, $3 or more, gets you early access to the show notes. And I am trying to get caught up with the up edited episodes. I'm about staying even. So one of these times here, I'll be getting back. I've, I've, I hired a new person at work, so they'll be starting Monday. So I'm hoping that might buy me a little bit of free time, but I'm exhausted. I'm <laughs> just tired. Uh, I'm ready for spring already. Is it too early to be saying we're ready for spring? Do you have to get past Christmas to say that? <laughs> I think so. I mean, we've had one little snow. Uh, I was all carrying out there up to her knees, it looked like, in snow. So, yeah. Has the Mud Club decided what they're doing for New Year's Eve? Uh, based on what people did last year, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm going to go diving, personally. Uh, and it will be paw-paw. Okay. And I had a couple of people join me last year. By George, we'll do it again this year. Yeah, and if I, my I, neck screws me up, I'll still go in. Yeah, I'll just I wear a red suit and a zippy hood. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you get so far down the line, you don't want to break your, your string. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Larry you, has made every one except one, and that was he went to a wedding or something, and that's 20 years ago. So it's yeah. unfair. I mean, he's been almost as long as me, minus one. Yeah. But you hate that when you break your string and stuff. Oh, it's terrible. Well, are you ready for that time of the show? I am sitting down. So here we go. When I was learning to drive in the winter, my dad told me, if you're ever lost in the snow, wait for a plow truck, then follow it. One cold, snowy Michigan night, I got lost on my way home. 
the snow was blowing so fast and piling so high I couldn't see any street sign. With no map of my car and a dead cell phone, I thought it might be I might be stranded, so I pulled over the side of the road. Then breaking through the flurries, I saw the headlights of a plow truck in my rearview mirror. Thanking my lucky stars, I turned in, followed the truck, hoping it would lead me back to somewhere I recognized. I followed that truck for what felt like hours. He turned left, and then he turned left, and then he swung to the right. And I was right on his tail. After a while, I saw brake lights from the plow, followed by four-way flashers. The plow had stopped. I saw the diver get out and approach my car. I rolled down my window to talk to him. Why are you, why are you following me, kid? The plow driver asked. Well, sir, my dad told me if I was ever lost in a snowstorm, I should wait for the plow truck and then follow it. Well, said the plow driver, I just finished clearing the Target parking lot if you want to follow me to Best Buy. Okie dokie. <laughs> that would be embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. But by the same token, when it gets that bad, what the hell are you doing out in the road? <laughs> yeah. Oh, to talk about it. Here, here, here here's, a, here's a, snow, uh, a uh, soapbox moment. Did everybody freaking lose their minds when we had snow? I mean... As the recording, that what was November, okay, so it's November 14th and Thursday. So we had a really heavy snow. They call, they canceled school. We've never had school canceled uh, this early in November without an ice storm. Uh, so November 12th, that would have been. Uh, what, what do your kids go to school? Bury it? Well, no, my, I don't, my, none of my, my kids are all in college. Well, that's true, so. but where did they? They went to bury it. Okay, because they had an article on that in our paper that the gentleman who makes that call, he gets up at 4.30, drives the bus route himself. And he said in that 20-mile triangle, Uh some places are absolutely not a problem and some are a pain in the whatever. And when you call it, you got to call it for all of it. Yeah. But the point he was trying to bring out is somebody just doesn't arbitrarily make that call. They go out. He he makes the call, therefore he drives the route to validate yeah. if he would have his kid and that school bus. Yeah, I, I'm not criticizing it. I just think it's unusual weather. Oh, yeah. For this time of year. We don't normally have this. In fact, the weather we're having, we usually don't get till after Christmas. So we're a good five, six weeks early, which is making me wonder if we're going to have a little bit of a, uh, you know, is the Lake Michigan going to cool down quicker? Well, I'm more concerned is we're going to have some good ice this year. Maybe. It could be oh, good ice. did you hear about what it was? Was it Lake 16? No. Uh, it looks like the um, either somebody cut them or the chains broke on the platform. It's now horizontal in the water. Oh. So there was a big discussion on that the other day about who can we get to rectify that situation and when. Maybe it might be a good ice dive activity. Well, not really, because I don't want to be down there messing with chains going up the bottom if I've got a line on. And if you've got a line on down there, how many yeah. chains do you have? Yeah. <laughs> Too many. More than you want to play with. I just remember that last time we had an ice dive there, the visibility was beautiful. That Yeah, that was that – you that, yeah, we normally do not do lineless ice dives. Yeah. But that was an exception date, but we did take precautions. 
Yes. Nobody could touch any damn thing. Bail out bottles on the platform. Go to the light. <laughs> yeah, go go to the light. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, may, maybe the spring. So it doesn't matter coordinating and getting it done. Uh, that's slowly been you know wet, showing its age every year. But uh, yeah. it seems like somebody always takes a little bit of care of it. So. Well, until next time, go out there and get wet. Oh, and stay safe. <laughs>